The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Amen. Well, I'd invite you now, if you have a Bible and want to follow along, we're going to study God's Word together. And the sermon of the day, we're just simply calling it the Ascension of Christ, the Ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 1. We will also look at Luke 24, and then we'll actually be looking at several other scriptures. So just to kind of give you a little bit of warning ahead of time there. So while you're flipping to Acts chapter 1, do we have children's church today? No? I think that means no, I can't see. I don't know. Anyway, so we'll resume with our children's church next Sunday. So now we have the privilege to... Look at the word of God together. So last week we had a full house because it was resurrection Easter Sunday. Uh, many of those folks were visitors. And that was a delightful to have them. And some of you maybe were out because you were visiting others and now you're back. So just by way of reminder last week, actually last Friday, Good Friday, we celebrated the Good Friday service for about an hour being reminded that Jesus said it is finished as he died on the cross and accomplished the work of salvation on behalf of sinners in fulfillment of the Father's will. And we celebrated communion together, and then we had our resurrection Easter Sunday celebration last week where we looked at the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Actually, we'll start with Luke 24 and pick up where we left. Last week, we went through that whole resurrection account given by Luke, the disciple, a historical event appeared to his apostles as they were in disbelief, appeared to the women before that, and in particular Mary Magdalene was the first one that he appeared to, and they saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead in his physical body, and he retained identity that he had prior to dying, yet there was something different about him. Now he was in a different kind of body in that it was a risen body, a resurrected body, a supernatural body, a physical body, flesh and bone, he said. It had the ability to eat. He could talk. Apparently, he had all the senses fully intact, and yet it was more than a human body like ours. It was a supernatural body, and that's the kind of body that the Lord Jesus rose in. It was a perfect body and without sin, but Jesus was always without sin. But the nature of a resurrection body is perfect without sin. It can live not just in this earth, but also live in the heavenly realms. It will never die. Uh, the resurrection body, and that's the kind of body that Jesus had. Uniquely, Jesus' body retains the marks of his death, scars on his hands, scars on his feet that he revealed to his disciples. Apparently, he still has those scars from the indication, I think it's in Revelation chapter 5. He looks as though he has been slain, yet he stands because he's the risen one. Appropriate could be the eternal reminder is, All of us who enter into heaven will see our risen, resurrected, glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, always being reminded because he'll still retain those marks in his hands and in his feet, reminding us that he died for you. That's how we got into heaven, the free gift of grace. So that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. And Luke tells us some of the ministry that he had. And Luke goes on in the book of Acts to tell us that after Jesus rose again from the dead, Uh, He ministered for another 40 days on earth. He would appear here and there at times uh, to different people, 
about 10 different appearances we know of where he selectively appeared to just his disciples. He was not appearing to unbelievers, apparently. He wasn't appearing to his enemies. He didn't uh, show up and harass Pilate. Nanny, nanny, told you so. No, he didn't do that as far as we know. He was only going to believers. Restoring them, confirming their faith, preparing them for ministry. And it was in the hundreds that he appeared to. Over 500 disciples who literally saw the Lord Jesus were with him. Some ate with him. Many touched him. They all worshipped him during those 40 days. And so now we look at what happened after the 40 days. And that's the ascension. The glorious doctrine of the resurrection or the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times we don't get to talk about the ascension much. We don't hear much about it. There's not as much information on the ascension of the Lord Jesus as there is his ministry during those three years. But there is a lot of information. So I thought it would be edifying to take some time this Sunday, maybe the next Sunday, to look at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the details of it, and then also the implications of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ because there are practical and relevant implications of his ascension for us as believers today. I don't know when the last time was that you thought about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should regularly as believers. As a matter of fact, right now, did you think at all about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and its implications this last week as a Christian? Explicitly, specifically, as a believer, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for ascending on high back up into heaven. If you didn't, this is a good reminder for all of us. Then I could ask other follow-up questions. Did you have any trials this week? Did you have any rough times? Did you have any stumbling? Did you have any things that weighed you down? Did you have any things that were burdensome? Did you have any conflicts with anybody? Did you have any needs that arose? Did you have any depression or a heavy heart? Did anything weigh you down like that this week? I think we could all say yes. And it's in light of those realities and the vicissitudes and the trials of life here on this fallen earth, living in fallen bodies that we need a reminder of the implications of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's not that just Jesus lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and it's over. It's kind of The ascension is not just a period at the end of a sentence. It is a grand, majestic, glorious truth and reality that has implications for the world but also particularly for believers and those who are in the church daily, continually, and forevermore. Because of the role in which Jesus serves in right now, he is the living Christ, the risen Christ. He's not just up in heaven with the Father, sitting there idle, doing nothing. He is busy. He is ministering. He is alive. He is active. He is proactive on our behalf. And these are some of the glorious truths we're going to see as a result of the resurrection. So three things are the ascension. I, I want to highlight just three truths about the ascension and Probably the third one we'll get to next week because that's the implications of the ascension. And there are so many blessed truths that flow out of it to us in this day. I don't want to just pass by them too quickly. So here are the three truths regarding the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ that I want to look at. Number one is the reality of the ascension. Because like any other doctrine in the Bible, the the ascension of Christ is under attack, has been under attack for 2,000 years. 
So the reality of the ascension. Then number two is the reward of the ascension. And then number three is the results of the ascension. So let's just go ahead and look first at uh, the reality of the ascension. And two main points here is just want to remind us as Christians here at Grace Bible Fellowship, we believe the Bible is God's word. We believe it is literal. It's historical. We can count on it. It was written by reliable witnesses who lived during the time in which it was written. Not only that, they were helped along by the Holy Spirit of God himself who led them, guided them, and literally helped them write down the truths of God in the Bible to ensure that it was inerrant, it was perfect, it was exactly the way God wanted it, the Spirit of God. So we call it inspired Scripture. God breathed as these men who, yes, they were fallen, yes, they were sinful, yes, they had their hang-ups. But when they were doing this, writing down on behalf of God as God's scribes through the help of the Holy Spirit, what they wrote down, the byproduct that we call Scripture, the Bible, is perfect. It is the supernatural living word of God to us today. And in light of that, we can take it at face value. And it's not difficult to read. As you read about the, the ascension accounts in Luke 24 and Acts 1, they're pretty straightforward. A six-year-old would understand what's going on there. It'd be bewildering, mind-boggling, alarming, shocking because of what happens. But nevertheless, it can be clearly understood of what's being communicated. It's just a matter of do you believe it or not. Without faith, is it impossible to please him? So we read scripture with faith. This is exactly how it happens. So let's go ahead and pick up in Luke 24. And we'll just read two accounts of the ascension to establish the, the reality of the ascension, the reality, meaning the historicity of the ascension, just as the Bible details it. Luke's account in Luke 24 and Luke's account in Acts 1, the two accounts to the ascension, they're a little different. But they are not contradictory. They are not identical, but they complement one another. Luke wrote both accounts. Luke is not contradicting himself. He knows what he heard. He knows what they believed. He knows what happened. So he wrote it just as God wanted him to. So Luke 24, regarding after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, spent 40 days with his disciples, he calls his disciples together. And it says in verse 50 of Luke 24, he led his the disciples. And the core of these disciples are the apostles. So it's the 11 apostles. Judas isn't there. He killed himself. But could very well be other disciples along with the apostles, the faithful women. Verse 50, Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany. Out from where? Well, probably Jerusalem. And so they just went on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So they're at Jerusalem at the top of the, you got the Dead Sea, and then to the left is Jerusalem, and then just to west a little bit of Jerusalem, as he's just going outside the city, on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem is the town of Bethany. as a familiar town to him. Close to Bethany is the Mount of Olives. So Mount of Olives with its three peaks, and one of those peaks leaks down into the region of Bethany, and that's where he is. So he's near Bethany, and he's going to end up on the Mount of Olives with his apostles and disciples. So he led them out of Jerusalem probably as far as Bethany. So he's got his group there. He'd been talking to them. He's giving them one last charge. They've been prepared. They've been taught well. And then he looks at his apostles just before his departure. It says he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. 
He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. This phrase, this exact phrase is only used one other time in the Bible. And it is used with respect to the great high priest, the first high priest in the Old Testament, Aaron. It's amazing. I don't think it was coincidental or by chance uh, that Jesus did this, raising up his hands and blessing them. That's the exact phrase out of Leviticus 9.22. Because Aaron, the great high priest, raised his hands and he blessed the people. He blessed them in the name of God. And when he did this formal act, it's interesting that in Leviticus 9, it says that Aaron, uh, the high priest, lifted his hands and blessed the people after making sin offering, after making burnt offering, after making peace offering. After the sacrifice was made, then he blessed them. Here's Jesus, the great high priest. After making his perfect eternal sacrifice, he blesses his people. Everything in Scripture is significant. Everything matters. So Jesus lifted his hands and he blessed his disciples. While he was blessing them, he parted from them, so he begins to back up and move away from them. And all of a sudden, he was carried up into heaven. Boom, just like that. He was carried away. Another passage says he was lifted up, carried away. It's like, oh, was somebody helping him? He's carried away. He was lifted up. It's like he's in a passive position and he's taken. Revelation chapter 12 says that he was snatched up. Harpazo is the Greek word. That's the word for snatch, like in rapture. That word is used. Snatched, seized, almost a, a violent. Whoosh. That's what happened. I believe he was lifted up, carried up, snatched up by the father, accompanied by angels. So that's the ascension right there. He was lifted up. He ascended is what that means. So he parted from them and he was carried up into heaven. And there, there they are left among themselves. Jesus is gone. Whoa, what, whoa, what was that? And they are all literally looking up because Jesus, whoop. And they're looking. They are standing there in awe, fixated on heaven. Wow. What just happened with their, no doubt, jaws hanging to the ground? Not only that, they were worshiping him worshiping him return to jerusalem get this with great joy these are the same apostles that every time prior to the crucifixion resurrection the same apostles anytime jesus even hinted at leaving what would they do freak out panic or when jesus said i'm going to jerusalem and i'm going to die and then peter just no and grabs jesus finally and says no you are not and he begins to rebuke jesus then when he finally did leave, they are sad, they're depressed, they're in mourning, they are in hiding, they are in fear, they are cowards, they're unbelieving. This is just 40 days before. And they're pleading with, no, you can't leave. No, don't leave. Please don't leave. We can't live without you. Same disciples. Isn't this amazing what Jesus accomplished? He, he needed to be there for those 40 days. What was he doing? He was ministering to his disciples. He cared for them. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their lack of faith. He knew their ignorance. He knew their limitations. He knew that he needed to be there as their savior, their master, their elder brethren, their Lord. 
to teach them, to encourage them, to pray for them, to pray with them, to lead by example, and also to tell them the glories yet to follow. Now that I have died and risen from the dead, here I am, the resurrection. And then he can go further in the Bible study because they wouldn't have got it otherwise. And he can begin to explicate other Old Testament scriptures about the glories that follow, what is yet to come. I rose from the dead, just as scripture said. Now I'm going to go back to the father and here's what's going to happen. And that kingdom that you were so concerned about, it's going to be established and God's going to use you to do it. And I'm going to, I said, I was going to build the church and you're going to be a part of it. You're going to lay the foundation and we're going to infiltrate this whole world until it reaches a culmination. And I'm going to return in glory and you will reign with me on 12 thrones among the tribes of Israel. Hallelujah. So they know the plan. That's why they have joy now. They, they now can handle Jesus leaving. And the promise that when I do leave, I will not leave you as orphans. I will leave in my place the Holy Spirit who will perfectly represent me and he will perfectly, perfectly represent the Father. He will be your advocate. He will be your comforter. He will be with you. He will teach you. He will bring into remembrance all things that I have instructed you. Man, that's exciting. The Holy Spirit. Jesus is leaving, but the Spirit's coming. That is, that's the promise, the promise. It was called the promise. Jesus kept calling it. Man, I'm telling you the promise. Here's the promise. Here's the promise. The Father's going to give me the Spirit to pour out on you in fulfillment of Old Testament. Joel chapter 2. When he comes, it's the promise. He's going to overcome you. He's going to empower you. He's going to lead you. He's going to make you bold and courageous. He's going to make you fruitful. He's going to give you joy. So Jesus ascends and leaves, and they're celebrating. Come on, Holy Spirit. And it's just days away. So that's why they have great joy. And verse 53, and so they, they run. They don't scatter and hide. Look what they do. Remember when they scattered and hid places that nobody could find them except the women and other disciples? But instead, they've got great joy. Verse 53, and it says they were continually in the temple. There it is publicly. In the temple. Who's in the temple? Jesus' enemies, the Jewish leadership, who arrested and murdered Jesus. They have no fear continually in the temple, not hiding continually so that's luke's account of the ascension with his just that little phrase there he was i mean not a whole lot of detail he was lifted up that's all it is that's the ascension right there he was lifted up doesn't say who doesn't say how as a matter of fact uh doesn't even say where he's lifted up to lifted up where well then luke circles back around and he gives us a little more detail so go to acts chapter one we saw this a little earlier. So picking up at verse 9 after he gives them the reminder of the promise of the Holy Spirit and will empower them. Boy, that sounded exciting, man. You're going to get power. You are going to get power when the Holy Spirit comes. He's coming when I leave. You'll be my witnesses as a result. Verse 9 of Acts chapter 1. And after Jesus had said these things. So this is the same place. It's by Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Same gathering as Luke 24. He lifted his hands. He blessed them. Then he backed up a little bit and then he was lifted up carried away carried up verse 9 says acts 1 and after he had said these things he was lifted up there it is again lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of the sight so he was just like swallowed up into a cloud straight up and as they were gazing intently into the sky so they watched it so they they are all in unison gazing intently fixated up in the air on the sky not knowing what's going on while he was looking behold all of a sudden two men in white clothing 
stood beside them out of nowhere. Boom. These are angels. Instantaneously. That had to have been alarming again. Every time those angels, they, they, they just, they're scary. Verse 11, and they said, and they're practical. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? That's a great question. Why do you stand looking in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you, there's the ascension right there, has been taken, lifted up. And see, it's kind of that passive tense that somebody took him up, something took him up, took him up. So is that God the Father? Is it the angels? He ascended. This Jesus who has been taken up from you in heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go up into heaven. There it is. Now we know where he went. He went up into heaven. He was taken up into heaven. There it is. That's the reality. That is the fact of the ascension. And there were eyewitnesses to validate it that it actually happened. Eyewitnesses who saw it. Eyewitnesses who were with Jesus. Eyewitnesses who could be trusted. Eyewitnesses of integrity. So here it is established as a historical fact in the moment that it happened by the testimony of two or three plus witnesses. The, the ascension indeed did happen. It cannot be denied. You deny the ascension. You deny the sovereignty and the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ now. He is not Lord if he did not ascend. If you deny the historicity of the ascension, you might as well deny the resurrection. You deny the resurrection, then you can just invalidate his death. It meant no, has no meaning whatsoever. You deny his death, we're dead in our sins. There is no hope, there is no purpose to life. The ascension is the crowning work of Jesus' saving task that he came to do so his disciples see him caught up into heaven and they continue to, and they are they begin to be changed they have joy and the change has isn't complete yet because the holy spirit is going to come and sure enough in acts chapter 2 on the day of pentecost uh, the lord jesus goes into heaven and then he sends his holy spirit the holy spirit comes down on these same disciples and then they are empowered just as jesus said and then the church and the disciples they are off to lay the foundation of the church and fulfill the Great Commission. So uh, just a couple other things about the reality or the historical veracity of the event of the ascension. I just want to detail it in order from other scriptures of actually what happened. Because there's a surprising amount of information. There are usually just little verses that tell us or give input onto the events of the ascension. So let me just go in chronological order uh, with the reality of the ascension. First of all, the ascension was clearly predicted in the Old Testament. Got to start there. This wasn't just some new thing that came out of nowhere. Fanciful teaching or idea, imagination of Jesus. This was predicted in the Old Testament. Old Testament Jews who actually knew and believed the Bible should have at least been aware that it was a mentioned. Now, of course, it was clouded somewhat. It was shrouded in a little bit of mystery, but that's made clear in the New Testament. But Psalm 68 verse 18 is just one verse. That speaks of a prophecy of the ascension of the Messiah, of the king. Psalm 68, verse 18. And the Apostle Paul quotes that in Ephesians 4, 8 in reference to Christ. He rose again from the dead. Then he ascended on high. Fulfillment of Psalm 68 written by David, 1000 B.C. So the ascension was predicted in the Old Testament. The, the ascension was also predicted explicitly by Jesus many times. Uh, most of the time in the Gospel of John. And... I'm not going to read them all, but it was predicted by Jesus. Just a couple. If you go to John chapter 6, we won't there, but that's a public discourse Jesus was teaching. It was around the time of the feast. 
He's out in public. The Jewish leaders are there. There's probably hundreds and hundreds of people in the audience as he's teaching. And he gets into a dialogue and starts talking about who he is. And his theme is, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. This is after he just provided a miracle of bread to people. And the masses, they wanted more bread. They, a lot of them are just following Jesus because they want free food. Great social program. Free food. And Jesus knows that. So their hearts aren't right. So he rebukes them. He said, yeah, I gave you food for today. That's not going to last. You, need, you know, you need the greater food, spiritual food, eternal food, real food. And well, who's that? They don't have a clue what he's talking about. And he goes on to say, me, I am the bread of life. John chapter six, I am the bread of life. And then five times in that dialogue, in this exchange, and some uh, antagonist in the crowd starts speaking up and, and taking him on and challenging him. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Who is this guy? Literally. And they go back and forth. But he starts out by saying, I am the bread of life. And then he says, I came who came down from heaven. I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, if you're a Christian, you probably know what that means. That Jesus was saying that he used to live with God, the father and the Holy Spirit up in heaven. And he lived there. Get this for all eternity. He never had a beginning. He was not created. He lived in eternity past with God, the father and the Holy Spirit Totally content, sinless, flawless, perfect as the triune eternal God in eternity past in heaven. Without humans, without creation, without angels, without sinners. Just fine and dandy without all of us. That's where Jesus lived. Then he came down as he was born of Mary in the incarnation. God became a man. That's what he meant. I, I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven. Keep in mind, hundreds, maybe thousands of people in the audience, not one person in that audience, including his apostles and disciples, had any clue what he was talking about. They didn't know that the way we do. We know because we got the New Testament. We're looking in hindsight. Not one person knew what he was talking about. I came down. I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven. You know, in that passage with, with the debate, he says it five times. I came down from heaven. 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 And you think, okay, they finally got it. And after all that, it says they didn't know what he's talking about. And they're discussing with, wait, what? what, what? Some were saying, what is he talking about? And the others were saying, who does he think he is? And then there's another comment that many of the disciples followed him no more. For this was a difficult statement. As he's talking about the bread and I am the bread and I am the one. And I'm basically what he's saying. I'm the only one. To have. I came down. I've been with Yahweh. I've been with Yahweh and the spirit for all eternity. The creator, the judge as almighty, eternal, uncreated God. And I came down here and I took on the form of a man. To save sinners. And I provide spiritual sustenance for your soul, not just physical sustenance for your gut. I am the savior. I'm the only way that your sins can be forgiven. You must partake of me. You must assimilate me. You must identify with me. You must commit to me. You must be loyal to me. You must take me wherever you go. You must submit to me. I am your all in all. You must eat me. My flesh. That's what got him. That was a stumbling block. Jesus even turned to his apostles after everybody left. So Peter was, am I a stumbling block to you? When I said those weird things. You must eat me, eat my flesh, drink my blood. No, Lord. Peter was being honest. No, Lord. Peter didn't know what he's talking about, but still he had a faith. No, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. 
So Jesus predicted that he was going. So in that passage at the end of chapter 6, he tells his disciples that I descended, I came down, and in like manner, I'm going to ascend back into heaven. So that's one of the first times that he taught publicly his ascension, and he does it many more times uh, throughout the Gospel of John. So Jesus predicted the ascension. Okay, now, oh, and then uh, in the upper room, just a week before, days before his death, he's only with his apostles, and he tells them in John 14, 1 and 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house up in heaven. And I go to prepare a place for you. What does that mean? I'm leaving earth and I'm going back into heaven. What is that? That's the ascension. There it is. And then a couple other times in John 14, he says, I'm leaving. I'm going. I'm going back to the Father. That's the ascension. So Jesus talked about the ascension. So he, Jesus predicts the ascension. Then he dies. He rises from the dead. He makes 10 appearances. He is with them for 40 days and then he ascends back into heaven and then here are some of the details regarding the actual act of the ascension uh we saw where luke said that he was lifted up another passage says he was carried up revelation 12 i said that he was snatched up caught up with great power and vigor and instantaneous action just like that that's what that word means he was caught up snatched up why? Because of the maybe because of the distance that he had to go, because uh, Hebrews four says that he passed through the heavens. So he's caught up whoosh, and then he passed through the heavens, 300 miles through the atmosphere and then a gazillion miles all the way to the uh, to heaven, wherever that was. Faster than anything we know. Snatched up. Only God could do that until he finally ends up into the third heaven. What's that? That is the heaven of heavens. That's where God is. That's where the angels are. The third heaven. Second Corinthians 12 talks about the third heaven. Paul was there. He had a vision in the third. It was so glorious. He couldn't repeat it. It was so amazing. The things that he saw and heard, he couldn't repeat it. Well, what did he say? He couldn't repeat it. And it was a secret that Paul told us. He was privileged to see the third heaven where God was in all of that splendor, all of that glory. That's what we have to look forward to. This is where Jesus went. So he passes through the heavens, and finally he arrives at the, the third heaven. Dun -dun 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 -dun. And then scripture says, when he got to paradise, he arrived in glory, 1 Timothy 3.16. So he arrives into heaven in glory. Hebrews 9.24 says, he entered heaven itself. There it is. Can you imagine the reception that he received from God the Father? Welcome back. Welcome back, my son my beloved one, he entered into heaven itself. And there he received a glory that he did not have even in his supernatural resurrection body. John twenty seventeen tells us that he was to be welcomed by the Father. So Jesus enters into heaven itself and then he's welcomed by the Father. Not only that, at this very time, Jesus' prayer was answered where as he was welcomed to the Father in glory, he was reinstated to the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. This is absolutely amazing. John 17, 5. He was reinstated as the Father welcomed him to a glory he had before the incarnation. What does that mean? Well, before the incarnation, Jesus was all glorious with the Father. He had no physical limitations. He didn't have a physical body. He didn't get tired. He didn't get hungry. He didn't... Uh, get worried he didn't weep and all these things that were part of his limitations when he took on a human body 
The greatest limitation Jesus has is the exercise of his will and his sovereignty at his discretion, at his volition, anytime he wanted to, because in the incarnation, he chose voluntarily to submit every decision, every act, every thought to the will of the Father. Father, only what you tell me to do, only what you want me to do, only what you empower me to do will I do. And he did it perfectly for 33 years. An utter, total dependence on someone else. Really walking in faith. Wow, God needed faith. Well, the God-man in his human limitations. Experiencing an existence for 33 years that he never experienced prior to that in eternity past. So he's praying to the Father just before his death. Father, return to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. He is looking to that return. And so when he enters into heaven itself, the father welcomes him and instantaneously he receives back all that glory that he had before the foundation of the world with a couple of changes and differences. Number one, now he has a physical body. Jesus did not have a physical body uh, in eternity past. It was just the father, the son and the Holy Spirit in spiritual form, a spirit persons, but spirits, no body, no flesh, no bone. Now, the resurrected God man has a physical body. A flesh and bone. And it is glorious, and it is perfect, and it's eternal, and it's amazing. But that's different. And that's how he entered heaven. The Father welcomed him, and yet he's reinstated to his sovereignty and glory and his independence and his volitional will that is in concert with the Father and the Spirit. Absolutely mind-boggling reality. So he enters into heaven itself. He's welcomed by the Father. He's reinstated to this awesome glory that he had as the eternal Son of God. And then what does the Father do next? Psalm 110, verse 1. The father says, sit here and rule amidst your enemies. Look at Psalm 110 if you have your Bible there, because I want to read that. This is exactly what happened. Jesus enters in. The father welcomes him. And then this prophecy is fulfilled. Psalm 110, written by David a thousand years before Christ, talking about the Messiah when he ascends on high and when he enters back into heaven, what's going to happen? Verse 1, Psalm 110, the Lord, that's literally Yahweh there in the Hebrew, Yahweh says to my Lord, that's a different Hebrew word. So God, the father says to the Messiah when he becomes Lord. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen when Jesus enters into heaven at the ascension. And God, the father says to Jesus, who is resurrected in heaven, he says, sit, sit over here, sit at my right hand. Just a lot of huge theological implications from that sit, first of all. Sit at my right hand. Sit at the place of authority. The right hand. The right hand of the king. The place of privilege. The place of recognition. The place of authority. The place of blessing. Sit at my right hand. Jesus, sit at my right hand in heaven. Sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies a a footstool for you. So Jesus is still going to have enemies, and he does. Jesus is up in heaven, and he's got enemies. He's got them now. He's had them for 2,000 years. The Father recognizes that. The Lord will stretch out, stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. There it is. So Jesus, in a sense, is up in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he's ruling. He is reigning. He has authority. He has authority. He's exercising authority that he didn't exercise when he was on earth for 33 years. And a lot of that authority is being exercised against his enemies. Jesus has enemies right now as he is up in heaven. So he has a ministry of combating his enemies 
from heaven. He is the king, but he reigns in abstention. He is not here. He will be. So he's actually not exercising the full rights of his authority that the father's giving to him because in the future he's going to come and reign as king in a different way, literally on earth in glory. But first Corinthians 15, 24 and following says that the father has Jesus there reigning with authority at the right hand of the father in the midst of his enemies, battling his enemies. And it says until all of his enemies are subjected underfoot. Then when all of his enemies are subjected underfoot, then Jesus gives the kingdom to his father. And then the Lord Jesus himself will subject himself to the eternal king, God, the father. Going off into the eternal age. So Jesus is battling enemies right now. Who's who's he battling? What are his enemies? Well, death is an enemy. We know that from Hebrews 2. First Corinthians 15. Death is an enemy. He's battling death. The devil is an enemy. First Peter 5, 8. Sin is an enemy. Demonic angels are enemies. These are all, Jesus is contending with all of them. Very active. And then, so that's what he's doing. Um, so that's what the father said to him. The father said, sit and rule. Then next, what does the father say? Uh, to my right hand, First Peter 3, 22, recognizes that at the right hand, the power or the seat of authority. Not only does he ha- say, uh, Jesus, sit at my right hand, on the throne but what throne does jesus sit down on so if i were to ask you what throne is jesus sitting down on or more specifically if i asked you just go around pop quiz and said is jesus currently sitting on the throne of david no don't answer out loud you don't want to embarrass yourself is jesus currently sitting on the throne of david many of you might say yes why would you say that I don't know why you would say that, but uh, there are people who say that Jesus is currently sitting on the throne of David. Well, who says that? Well, people who are amillennial theologians, covenant theologians. If you don't know what that word means, that's fine. These are Christians. These are evangelicals. These would be people at your, you know, Presbyterian churches and et cetera, et cetera. And they, according to their theology, they believe that Jesus is now currently sitting on the throne of David. He is reigning in heaven from the throne of David. And then there's a group of folks called progressive dispensationalists. And they would also say that Jesus is sitting on the throne of David and reigning currently on the throne of David. And I would say, well, no, he's not. Where do they get that from? Well, I'll just read this verse. Listen carefully. Luke chapter one. Remember when Gabriel appeared to Mary at the time of the birth? Great news. Virgin shall be with child. She's going to give birth to the Messiah. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, Savior. God saves. Wow, what a name. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. He will be related to Yahweh directly, unlike anybody else. Not only that, get this. And the Lord God, Yahweh, the father, will give him, will give your son. The Lord God will give Jesus the throne of his father, David. There it is. This was not news to Mary. She grew up in the synagogue. She was a Jew, faithful Jew. Second Samuel, chapter seven. 
few other places, the Psalms, God promised that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, would inherit the right to rule on the throne, uh, to rule on the throne of David, King David, and sit on David's throne. And that was true of Jesus the Messiah. So he was a descendant of King David. Matthew one establishes that. And so he's just promising that uh, this your son is going. God the Father is going to give him the throne of his father David, uh, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, he doesn't tell him when that's going to happen, when it's literally going to be fulfilled. He's, it's going to happen, and it's literal. So Mary and any Jew in that day, they wouldn't be thinking, oh, yeah, of course, that Jesus, when he dies on the cross and rises from the dead and ascends back into heaven, he will assume the throne of David up in heaven spiritually where nobody can see him forever and ever. That is not what they were thinking. They're thinking, oh, yeah, this is awesome. All the way back to Genesis and the promise to to Judah, that a descendant of Judah, like David, would have the right to rule with a scepter and a rod of iron on earth from the headquarters of Israel. And then God fine tunes that promise in the days of Samuel. Gives David the throne. Says your descendants will reign forever. This is the right throne this is the right throne on which the messiah will come he will inherit the power and the authority under the lineage of king david and he will reign from this throne and where did david reign by the way david reigned on the earth david didn't reign in heaven he will reign from the throne of david where did david reign on the earth revelation 5 10 says that saints will reign on the earth daniel chapter 7 the saints will reign on the earth Revelation chapter 20, Jesus himself will reign on the earth. Jesus prayed, pray, our Father who art in heaven, how will be thy name? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. So this promise that Gabriel, the angel, told Mary was uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. He will be the Savior, and he will be King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is going to rule on the throne of his father, David. Going back to Jesus is welcomed into heaven by the Father. He says, sit at my right hand. He gives him all authority. And then Jesus goes and he sits down, not on David's throne up in heaven, but Revelation 3.21, Jesus said, and he told his disciples, that I sat down on the throne of my Father. He's not sitting on David's throne. He's sitting on the Father's throne. That's why he has all authority. He has the, the, the authority of the Father. It's like the king either getting up or scooting over. Come on, sit down. And Jesus has all authority of the Father. We know that in many different ways. John chapter 5, Jesus said that the Father is rendered and given all authority to the Son. The Father judges no one, only the Son. Jesus is the judge, not the Father. That's just one example. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the authority over the church. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the one who has been exalted. In Philippians 2 it says, because of his obedience to the Father, dying and rising again for the, uh, from the dead and paying the penalty of sin for his people, the Father rewarded him by resurrecting him, but also rewarding him by ascending him on high, coronating him, exalting him as the glorious King of kings and giving unto him all authority and power and might. And that's why in Revelation chapter 5, in that glorious scene up in heaven that we can't see, but John gives us a peek. There's the throne right in the middle. That is the it's the throne of God, the father. And right there, dead center in the middle of the throne is the lamb of God himself risen from the dead with the father. And around him are 24 thrones of those who worship the father. 
Not only that, there are the four living beings who worship the Father. And around them, myriads upon myriads upon myriads upon myriads, should I keep going? Upon myriads of angels worshiping the Father. And then it also says they also worship the Lamb. That is our glorious, blessed Lord Jesus. Those are some of the implications of the ascension. Absolutely awesome. And that's where Jesus is today. So he is surrounded by myriads of creatures in glory. He's doing his work of battling his enemies, waiting till they are all subjected unto him and to the father. And then his ministry is going to continue with the next great event in history, and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. With that, let's go to the father in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and the privilege again to worship with the saints, to sing to you, to sing of your mercies, to sing of your grace. to be reminded of how glorious you are. Thank you for the gift of scripture, the word of God. We thank you for these reminders of the events of the ascension. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand it. And God, we need the help of the Holy Spirit now to apply it to our life. God, we pray that these great truths about your powerful resurrection, validating who you are, validating every thing you taught, every promise you gave, every glorious truth that came from your lips is validated by virtue of your resurrection, your ascension. We thank you that you reign on high even now. We thank you that as the ascended one at the right hand of the Father, as the King with all power, you attend to the, your people, you attend to your church. You're, you're literally present in our midst through your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we also know that you are the great high priest. Hearing and listening carefully to our prayers, our cries, and at the same time praying for us as our advocate to the Father, because you ascended on high. Thank you for your ministry as the mediator, the great high priest. We love you. We give you all the glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.